Welcome to Friday. Friday Louia to you. It's Mike Opelka on the Pure Opelka podcast. Thanks for being here. So many of you have written and said, hey, we like the podcast. Well, that's good, but we need you to help spread the word. So send the link to your friends and tell them they can find it at puropelka.com pretty much on a daily basis around noon, or they can find it via SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and you can actually get it automatically. So do that, please. It's Friday, and uh, we here in the Northeast are awaiting this storm that could be a mess for us. We could get a bunch of ice. The temperature was in the in the 50s this morning when I got up at 4 o'clock, and it's now dropping like a rock. It's down into the 40s, headed to the 30s, and tomorrow it'll be in the 20s, maybe the teens. Good God, man. We'll get through it. It'll melt, and then we'll go out again. It's all about being ready, being prepared for anything, so that, God forbid, the power goes out, you've got enough canned goods and access to heat that you can live. Take a few minutes. Be prepared. And while you're at it, make a little bag for your car with a little water and a little food and maybe matches or something and a change of clothes. Just saying. Throwing that out there. Uh, Looking back on this day, back in the day, there's a lot going on in the history file. In 1789, George Washington officially, officially is unanimously elected president. The first president, unanimously, he got all 69 electoral votes. So um, that was a good thing. It was also on this date in 1889, Harry Longabau was released from the Sundance prison in Wyoming where he earned his nickname, the Sundance Kid. Now you know. And in 1930, the Snickers bar was introduced by the Mars Candy Company in Minnesota. It's a pretty good candy bar, the Snickers bar. And I like their silly commercials where people eat a Snickers and then they change back from the angry, hungry version of themselves into normal. It really doesn't do that. It can't change you that much. The the Snow White and Seven Dwarfs controversy that's been bubbling for the past couple of weeks after Peter Dinklage, famous uh, vertically challenged actor, complained about Disney doing the new version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It, uh, it's going to be back in the conversation today because it was on this date back in 1938. Disney actually released the original. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. If you've ever donated money to the USO, that's a good thing. The USO supports our men and women stationed around the world. The USO is having a birthday today, formed on this day in 1941. And it was on this date in 2004 that Facebook was introduced and launched by Mark Zuckerberg in his dorm room at Harvard. And now Facebook, this dominant tech behemoth, which is worth several billion dollars, several hundred billion dollars, is having a little tough time. Facebook is suffering uh, from a a drop in subscribers and use, and so their ad revenue is dropping to the point where Zuckerberg lost in, in value. He didn't actually lose hard money, 
but the gigantic drop in Facebook stock cost Mark Zuckerberg his spot in the top 10 richest people. He lost $30 billion in personal worth. He's going to be okay. We don't need to worry about Mark Zuckerberg. There won't be any any uh, telethons for him. But Facebook's having a tough time. I wish I didn't have to use Facebook. I hate the fact that Facebook is uh, so lefty in all of its opinions and it, it bans people that it disagree, disagrees with because they're pretty much conservatives. Yesterday, they blocked an American group on Facebook a group of truckers who were trying to organize a cross-country caravan like, like Canada has. These guys are trying to put together a March 1st drive across the country of truckers saying, we don't like the mandates, no mask mandates, no uh, vaccine mandates, none of it. Facebook doesn't like that. You're not allowed to have that kind of discussion. So Facebook canned the group. And they also stuck a fork in, uh, in the accounts of two of the people that were organizing it. It's very interesting. I want to see where this is going to go. Because, you know, you're not allowed to make comments contrary to what the government direction is telling you. And yesterday, as it relates to the vaccine madness, uh, Shaquille O'Neal weighed in. Shaquille O'Neal, who is is a guy that is very interesting. I think he's, he's a man who spends time thinking about what he says before he says it. Shaquille O'Neal was in an interview talking about uh, vaccine mandates. And he's not a fan of vaccine mandates. As a matter of fact, he was pretty darn clear about it. I encourage everybody to, to be safe and take care of your family. I do. But it's still some people that don't want to take it. And you shouldn't have to be forced to take something that you don't want. So I don't think people are being forced to take. Well, there are some. There are. I mean, listen, we have a mandate at CBS. That's forced. We have a mandate at CBS. But my but my point. That's forced. But where I wholeheartedly. That's forced. No, it's exactly. It's forced. You can say it a million times, lady. It's not forced. It's forced if there's a mandate. Happy to see Shaquille O'Neal stepping up like this. Very happy to see this. Good for you, Shaq. Well done, sir. We have so much to get to today. And uh, our friend Wendy Patrick, the attorney and author, is stopping by because there are two crazy stories out there. One of them involves Facebook, as we're talking about Facebook here. One of them involves Facebook and its new alternative universe, the metaverse, as they call it. And crimes allegedly committed while you're in the metaverse, but they don't happen in the real world? Is there any reality here? Plus, there's a wild story about what is Mexican food, and a judge is going to have to decide it. Crazy story out of Nevada, where a restaurant is arguing that they held the right to be the only Mexican restaurant in this mall, and they're debating whether or not their their contract has been violated with the mall owner and whether or not they should get a rent reduction because there's another Mexican restaurant and the other restaurant saying, well, we're not a Mexican restaurant. Are we really going to start having food police and food court? We'll get into that with Wendy Patrick just around the corner. 
But there are other bigger topics we need to get to as the Olympics are opening. And I'm really trying not to watch any of the Olympics. Trying not to watch a single minute of it. Because I really feel like that's feeding China. And feeding money into China. And China is not our friend in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, China is uh, threatening America every single day just by its existence and what it's doing around the world and inside our country. So the games are open. They're going on. And yesterday, Nancy Pelosi said something to our Olympic athletes that, uh, well, I have a problem with it. I would say to our athletes, you're there to compete. Do not risk incurring the anger of the Chinese government because they are ruthless. Well, this is interesting. Yes, the Chinese government is ruthless. We've known that. But the American government doesn't really stand up to China. We don't really tell them, cut it out. Stop with the slavery. Stop with the uh, genocide of the Uyghurs. Not since Donald Trump, anyway. So Pelosi's obviously stating something that everyone knows here. China's ruthless. But don't you dare, don't you dare stand up to them. No, I think you should. And you you should wear uniforms. I I wish our American Olympian uniforms had anti-China messages that talked about freedom and free speech and freedom of religion. Wouldn't that have been a wonderful giant finger to the communist government? There's more from Pelosi. I know there is a temptation on the part of some to speak out while they are there. I respect that, but I also worry about what the Chinese government might do. And she went on to say what the Chinese government might do to the athletes in China and to their families back in America. Really? Shouldn't this be coming from the president? Shouldn't the president of the United States say to China, hey, one hair on the head of one of our athletes gets must? You're in big trouble, people. I don't think that's going to happen because he's weak. And we'll get to the president, what he said in New York yesterday, too, because it's just ridiculous. The guy keeps repeating these lies about the Second Amendment, and he's going to come for our guns. Trust me, they're going to make the effort. But uh, I will keep an eye on the medal totals, and I will cheer our athletes on without watching them. I don't want to put a penny in NBC's pocket or into the pockets of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, which makes billions off of this this Olympic, the genocide Olympic Games. Just saying. The other big story of the day that I think is worthwhile celebrating, a story that deserves a uh, gigantic attaboy, is the outbreak of journalism that happened at the State Department press conference yesterday when uh, Ned Price, who reminds me of Ned Flanders on The Simpsons, was roundly challenged by uh, the APs. Is it Mike Lee? I know Mike Lee used to be a senator, but there's an AP reporter, last name Lee, who was talking to um, the, the spokesperson from the State Department, Mr. Price, and Price was putting out some pretty serious Bravo Sierra 
talking about the situation with Russia and Ukraine. And for weeks now, the American government has been hinting that Russia was just about to do something and create a false flag operation inside Ukraine that would warrant Russia coming in and attacking. In other words, Russia would send some people in, in uniforms that looked like they were Ukrainian military, and they would start firing on the Russians, which would allow Russia to counterattack. When in reality, they weren't really being fired upon by Ukrainians. It was a a Russian false flag operation. And uh, this is this is just not happening. This is Bravo Sierra. And the State Department spokesperson got called out by it on it by the AP reporter. And it's just beautiful. We told you a few weeks ago that we have information indicating Russia also has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into now. Um, what evidence do you have to support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the, in, in the making? So that's the AP reporter challenging Price, who said that uh, Russia's up, up to this false flag operation. Now it gets interesting. This is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have declassified. Where is it? Where is the declassified information? I just delivered it. No, you made a series of allegations. What would you like, Matt? I'll tell you what I'd like. I'd like to actually see the intelligence, especially if it's been declassified. Show me the intel. Don't summarize it and give me your story. Show me what actually is going on or what you can confirm is going on in order to warrant us ramping up efforts, sending 3,000-plus troops into Eastern Europe, saber-rattling, just to elevate Biden's opinion in the polls, but continue. I, I would like to see some proof that you, that, 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 that you can show that... that Matt, you have that, been that, that shows you, that that, that you, shows that the Russians are doing this. Not we do so in, in a means. In we do and so. I, and, we do so with an eye to that, protecting that sources and methods. Is not going to fall. I, I remember a lot of things. So where, where where is the declassified information other than now? I, I love the fact that this reporter calls back to what happened in Afghanistan. It's like oh, I remember when you guys told us that Kabul wasn't going to fall. Whoops. Whoopsie. There's a little more. You coming out here and saying. Matt, I'm sorry you don't like the format, uh, but we have declassified. It's the format. It's the content. Yes, there is the answer. It's not the format, sir. It's the actual content that is missing here. It's the actual content. And is that too much to ask that we actually get the content? Wow. Just wow. Uh, we have to applaud the Associated Press. You guys have done really great work here. Or this gentleman has. I know a lot of people are saying, don't give them too much credit. That was just phenomenal. There's a couple other stories out there that are getting my attention in terms of needing an attaboy or at a girl, as the case may be. Uh, a Virginia mother unloading on the mask mandates. And she's quoting that line from the movie Moneyball that I know my buddy Dan Bongino uses all the time. He references that line 
where they're talking about a guy who's supposed to be a really good hitter and and the uh, the person says, well, if he's such a good hitter, how come he doesn't hit? And this Virginia mom talking to the school board saying, if masks work, why don't they? Excellent point. Excellent point. Good for you for standing up, madam. And out in California, I think it was Simi Valley. It was out, way out west in California. A young boy who happens to be the son of a police officer. The son of a police officer was complying with the mask mandate and he wore a mask to school. His mask happened to be one of those thin blue line masks. I have a thin blue line sticker on the back window of my car. And uh, it's just something you see everywhere. It's a black and gray kind of U.S. flag with that one thin blue line representing the police. And in this case, the boy wears the mask to school and the teacher yells at him and says that that is not an appropriate mask, saying that it is the mask of the new Confederate flag. And it's not. And I'm glad somebody recorded this because that teacher can now be reprimanded, although it's California, so they're probably not going to reprimand the person at all. Not At least I don't believe they will. Uh, I would hope that something would happen, but I think that's too much to ask. I'm just saying. Yesterday, Joe Biden, as we mentioned, was in New York talking about uh, guns, and he, he said that you, you can't have, uh, you can't have a, a, a cannon, or at least when the Second Amendment was first, first written, you weren't allowed to have a cannon. In fact, you were, and a lot of people are repeating that, so I'm not going to keep playing that. Just thought I'd share that with you. The other big story that I think is uh, worth talking about today is uh, the food story. So let's get our friend Wendy Patrick on the horn here, and we'll discuss this food story as well as the story about the crime in the metaverse, in the virtual world. Is it real crime, or is there actually something that can be done about this? I am so happy that we have carved out some time today to address some of the more serious, vital, critical legal questions of our time. And for this, obviously, intellectual segment, I have tapped on maybe the smartest legal mind I personally know, and that is the one and only Wendy Patrick, attorney, author, uh, speaker, and, and friend of wherever I am on the radio. And I'm glad she's here. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Mike. It's always a pleasure to join you wherever you are. And wherever you are, because you're now <laughs> bouncing around the country again, too, which is a very good thing. Uh, Wendy, um, I have two topics I want to talk about. Uh, one deals with the virtual world and the metaverse and all this stuff and, and crime, actually, serious crime. And the other is a little bit lighter topic. So do you mind if I play the host card and I say, can we talk about the lighter stuff first? Yeah, no, that sounds great. Okay, it's a foodie thing, and there are a couple of issues about this. And it's a story I had first seen in the Wall Street Journal about a Nevada judge is going to be asked to define what is Mexican food. And that's such a great question. 
What's Mexican food? Because I I spent uh, 13 years in Texas and grew a great fondness for Tex-Mex, which is different than traditional Mexican food. And you're a Californian, and it seems like California has a different kind of Mexican food. How is this even really a, a legal argument? Well, the, the way it became a legal argument is very interesting. It has to do with, you know, if you have a strip mall and you lease to a Mexican restaurant, uh, they can say, look, we don't want you leasing to another Mexican restaurant. You can basically have an agreement that says no other restaurant in that same center would sell Mexican or Tex-Mex food. That is where this lawsuit comes in. So there was a, a shop called Chop Stop that opened up next to uh, Cafe Rio with Mexican Grill, which is clearly a uh, Mexican restaurant. Uh, and Chop Stop has a Santa Fe chopped salad. And if that is a Tex-Mex or Mexican salad, the question becomes legally, does that violate the agreement that they wouldn't sell Mexican food? And as, as luck would have it, they're literally right next door <laughs> to each other, <laughs> these two restaurants. I'm telling you, after watching the clip on television, it makes me hungry for Mexican food. It, they they actually brought in uh, an expert, a chef that works elsewhere, I think it was Kusongs, that talked a little bit about this fascinating distinction as to what makes Mexican food, Mexican food. And he talked about, you know, traditional ingredients and, you know, and basically gave what I would consider legally to be an expert opinion from his training and experience uh, as to what he thought about sort of the Tex-Mex light, that's my my play on words there, L-I-T-E, uh, nature of the, the chop shop salad at issue. But they're leaving it up to a judge. And Mike, you and I and our listeners probably wonder, well, where's the judge going to get the expertise to decide what is Mexican food and what is not? I mean, does he taste both both cuisines and then make a decision? What does he do? Well, and a palate is such a very uh, different thing in every single person. You know, we all have personal different tastes. And uh, this this argument reminds me of, and forgive me for going there, Wendy, but it, it goes back to, I believe it was a, it might have even been a Supreme Court argument about porn. And one of the judges said, justices said, um, I'll know it when I see it in terms of obscenity. What's obscene? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll know it when I see it. Is this Mexican food? I'll know it when I taste it. Well, it's interesting because even if um, that were the litmus test, that wouldn't be legally sufficient. It's not so much. I mean, you, you know, you can have Mexican sauces and different kinds of ingredients that are maybe more traditionally found in Mexican food than other types of food. But that wouldn't make a restaurant a Mexican restaurant or make a salad a Mexican salad. You know, it, it almost comes down to labeling here. You know, if you want to have a salad that has crushed tortilla chips, guacamole, you know, um, uh, refried beans. You can think of other ingredients. Call it something else. I mean, to call it a chop shop Santa Fe salad uh, probably was a, probably drew some unwanted suspicion to the salad to begin with. But I have to tell you, Mike, you know, we really don't want a chilling effect to, to really kind of go into the sublime as to, well, gosh, you know, there's chips on the side of that dish, so maybe that's Mexican too. That can't be the test. And I wouldn't be surprised if this judge, regardless of how he decides this case, I mean, I, again, it, it, let, let's leave it up to somebody that doesn't have training uh, as far as what makes an authentic Mexican restaurant. I'm sure that he's going to make a very good record talking about 
some of these issues because we really don't want to, to quash competition to the extent that somebody would be afraid to put an item on the menu that somebody might arguably say has flavors that are similar to another kind of restaurant in the same uh, in the same strip mall. I mean, think about how many sandwich stores are sometimes in the same strip mall. I mean, they have to come to some agreement too. I mean, clearly you don't have you know two ice cream stores, but sometimes you have two Starbucks, <laughs> you know, same company. That's true. But uh, it's just a, it's a very interesting issue to be discussing, isn't it? Well, there are two different things at play here. Number one is the exclusivity as it relates to the rental property. Within the mall, the restaurateur signed a contract making an agreement on a price based on a certain uh, right that they would have purchased to be the only of their kind. And when another one comes in, that affects the value that that owner saw. So there is built into the lease, I believe, a rent reduction. So the owner of the mall property has skin in the game, too, and might be allowed to, I would guess, raise an argument regarding what's Mexican food or not. This is really a fascinating <laughs> case. And this is why we need a TV show called Food Court, where we answer all of these questions, Wendy. <laughs> oh, I wish I had thought of that soundbite. That is really funny, Mike. Good job. Well, thank you. But there are there are more questions like this. There's, there is another case currently, I think it's currently going on right now, or it may have been solved already, about whether or not a burrito is a sandwich. And so uh, we, we have enough material here. And it was uh, two years ago, three years ago, perhaps, a, a couple of women in Washington State were going to open what they called a Mexican restaurant. And they happened to be two white women. And the community shut them down over cultural appropriation. They said, you can't open a Mexican restaurant the city didn't outlaw it, but there was enough pressure from the community to prevent them, despite the fact that they had gone to Mexico for months to study how to make the classic Mexican dishes. So this whole issue of food and licensing, and I believe if we even go back further, Wendy, I'm sorry to take you down this road, but my ADD brain is distracting no, me. No, it's very interesting conversation. The Wall Street Journal, same paper that is reporting on this case, I believe it was maybe even two decades ago, did a story about Italy wanting to travel the world and certify whether or not a restaurant could be called an Italian food restaurant. And they were then going to license you. And the journal in its famous center column, which used to have some of the greatest array of off newsy stories, uh, covered this. And I, I have to now do my homework and find out whether or not Italy actually went through with that. But they were trying to come to the United States and go to every single Italian restaurant with their own Italian food police. And whether or not that menu was really official, they would give them the, uh, I guess it's the, the seal of approval, which comes with the benefits of being able to say officially certified Italian food. This is a topic that ain't going away, Wendy. This is going to be here for a long time. I think so. And I think it's fascinating because, you know, you, you bring up some really good points about, you know, who should be the one to decide what you call something. And what if you live 
like where I do in San Diego, where you have a lot of Mexican food restaurants. How do you space them around far enough to where landlords aren't arguing that, you know, there, there's an issue between different leases? So it, it is, a, I think we'll, we'll be revisiting food court. We'll call it back into session. Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to look into pursuing this because the Food Network would pay us uh, fancily for uh, oh, for sure, holding a weekly food court where we could decide and think of the catering. We'd have great food every oh single time. Oh my gosh! You know what? That that alone is an incentive, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then after that, after food court is wine court, and then everybody goes home because uh, it's just okay. <laughs> it's very difficult. All right, Wendy, let's get serious. There's a story out there that I found uh, really kind of surprising. A story about a woman who claims. She went into the virtual world, the meta world, and was assaulted. And there even have been reports that use the word rape uh, in terms of what she said happened to her. And this is, again, someone who wasn't physically assaulted in the real world, but she went into the metaverse and claims that she was assaulted. Is, is this a case that can actually have real world repercussions? You know, it's a very interesting case that you bring up. And, you know, we have long known that video games have just gotten incredibly violent over the years. I mean, when I was growing up, we played like Pac-Man and Space Invaders. Yeah. I mean, you know, there weren't like, you know, ninja warriors killing each other, fighting to the death. You didn't have a lot of what you have now with these avatars. I remember when the movie Avatar came out, everybody thought, wow, you know, that's that's so neat. It's, it's you know, how great to sort of be, choose a character to represent you online. Well, uh, in this particular case, it's a woman that's alleging a rape in the virtual world of her character. And it is, uh, she's saying three to four male avatars with male, I know, how do you know what gender an avatar is? Avatars with male voices, gang raped her avatar and she talked about the trauma of watching that happen uh, and then there were some very lewd rude comments that accompanied what occurred the comments like don't pretend you didn't like it those types of things that she was alleging so it really was a um, a very traumatic act although it wasn't in real life and then the question then becomes uh, should that kind of conduct be permitted in the virtual world? I mean, obviously, we're not, probably not going to send anybody to jail for this type of thing. But you can imagine if it got to the nature where it could qualify as a criminal threat against her in real life, we might be in different territory. It's just simply not true that a threat isn't a threat if it's made online. But that's a little bit far removed from what we're talking about here. Um, it's another very interesting legal question, isn't it? It is. And, and I understand a threat can still be a threat if it's made online. But if it's made in an alternative or alternate universe where there is no physical presence and there only are these make believe things. And I know people think, oh, they're not just make believe. They're really part of me. <laughs> uh, my, my question to anyone who encounters violence or evildoers in a virtual wor world um my question would be, why didn't you just take your headset off and exit the program? And yeah, that, right. 
Well, remember you you quote you quoted uh, the Supreme Court justice that talked about I think it was I think it was Justice Potter, but you know uh, I know obscenity, I know it when I see it or pornography. I think he might have been talking about one or the other. But I would also say the other thing that they said is if you don't like what you're viewing, just avert your eyes. Uh, I would take that same Supreme Court wisdom and apply it to uh, the online experience. If people are are involved in a gaming room or a chat room or some sort of an online forum that's offensive, obviously they want to exit out of that forum as quickly as they can. Let me give you another issue there too, Mike. You can't prosecute an avatar. If it, even if it was, even if you were in some sort of an online forum and somebody threatened your life, how do you prove who it was? You know, that, that it has long been an issue. Even when people are supposedly posting under their own names, you still have to have proof and trace IP addresses and all the other things that come along with sort of tying a, a real-life identity to an avatar. So this is a lot easier said than done. But I do agree, you know, if the virtual world gets ugly and gets um, gets traumatic for users, that is they really should not be, I mean, obviously it shouldn't be going on to begin with, but that would be a forum to avoid for sure. Yeah, I, I just, the, the only reality in all of this crazy virtual world is somewhere the lawyers are going, there's got to be a way for us to make money on this. We have to, we have to be able to file suits against virtual people and get virtual money put into our virtual accounts so we can build virtual <laughs> offices and cities and have virtual yachts and all that stuff. Uh, this ain't going away, Wendy. This is one we're going to revisit like we will the food cases. So I, I hope you'll hang out with me and we can talk about it going forward. Oh, sounds like a plan. Her name is Wendy Patrick. Find her at wendypatrick.com. Best place you should go, though, is on Twitter and follow what Wendy's up to because there's some really terrific stuff, including her articles at Psychology Today. Thanks so much, Wendy. Thanks, Mike. 